Sweet nectar, sweet rector, sweet hector, hector, sweet, sweet nectar, sweet rector, sweet hector, hector, sweet. Hi. Sammy Delotti reporting for the No Home Journal. This is Education Part 2. You know, last time I talked a lot about the light and the underground cave-like dwelling we're born into and the man who is released and suddenly compelled to stand up, to turn his head around, to walk and look up towards the light. Until now, finally a person would be able to make out the sun and see what it's like. But I have to admit, I left something out. And if compelled to look at the light itself, his eyes hurt, and would he flee? And if someone dragged him away from there by force along the rough, steep, upward way, wouldn't he be distressed and annoyed at being so dragged? And when he came to the light, wouldn't he have his eyes full of its beam and unable to see even one of the things now said to be true? A trifling matter, you might say, in your distinctive 19th century patter, and its mission hardly changes the nature of the passage. But, uh, doesn't it? Is not the fact that this adult must be dragged along by some other force not the crux of it all? Chapter 1. Das Volk ist Bosa und Dumm. In the fall of 2014, at NYU's Skirball Center for the Performing Arts, Rector Fatima Serkin developed her polemic on education. I went, of course. How could I not? The lecture and Fatima herself made quite an impression and were talked about on campus for some time after the event and even inspired some soirees at Kopi Kopi in the Uncommons, organized by the students. People debated what she'd said, how she'd said it. Her malice had been palpable. The title of the first part of her lecture was literally, The People Are Evil and Dumb. And after her first words, a stunned silence had fallen over the crowd. Most people were puzzled. They couldn't figure out why NYU had chosen to invite Rector Serkin in the first place. Though everyone agreed that she was learned, there was something not quite sanitary about her ideas. As if she'd gone out drinking with fascists once, and struck had been trying ever since to forget it without success. Introduction by Deans of Steinart School and the College of Arts and Science, Rector Fatima Serkin takes the stage. We will begin with a reading from recent work by the fabulous Trait 70, a French-Canadian educator and mystic who under the pen name T.S. Eliot's Chantilly, 
has penned a number of morally bankrupt children's stories. Turn to page 16 and please recite Rabbi Sanguine in unison, but omit the fourth paragraph. I should say here that we all dutifully turned to page 16 in our programs and began to read the story, all very quietly, which made the sound coming from hundreds of voices ominous. The teacher laid down his book. Class is over, he said. He gathered up his items, an apple, two oranges, and three ballpoint pens, pulled on his vest, and got on with it. Bill and Sue were sitting near the back, both in pigtails and cute as could be, with ruddy cheeks and stocky caps, whispered and giggled. Sue made a lewd sign with three fingers, and they pushed their chairs back and got up. They walked toward the teacher slowly, cautiously, being careful not to step on the spots on the floor or the remote. When they reached the front, the teacher looked up. He smiled sweetly. Sue smiled back sweetly, then swung her foot and kicked him hard in the nuts. He doubled over, gasping and crying. Bill ground his shoes into the teacher's face, and the teacher tasted blood as Sue kicked him in the head. Slowly, he slipped into unconsciousness. Continuing now with the transcript. That people are often petty, cruel, and stupid might be a truism, but it was enough to motivate Alexander Hamilton to stake his political career on a gamble to prevent power from falling into the hands of the hordes, those Huns. Even if in those days our farmers read Homer, it wasn't worth the risk. Plato's school thought as he did, and in fact, democracy is the second to lowest rung on the ladder of regimes that ascends to aristocracy, which Plato explicated over two millennia ago. Reasons why may be found in the Republic, Book 7, which is your homework. I want to interject here that no one had books, this being a one-off lecture and she not being the author of the Republic. But since she didn't indicate that she was anything but completely serious, many of us copied down our homework on the margins of our programs, and a surprising number of us even completed it. Regimes the world over are led by tyrants who believe commoners are the greatest threat to social felicity, since they are so easily perverted. Ah, you perked up at that. College lads and lasses longing for the flasks and phalluses. And you others who perked but didn't grin, are you subjects in the kingdom of sin that is presided over by that vice confessed by Jean-Jacques Rousseau? I see, looking out across the hall, that there are more than a few of you who share Rousseau's predilection. How can I tell, you might be wondering? What crack has appeared in your carefully constructed facades? It's inchoate stuff. Feebleness of expression. Vaguely enervated ambulation. I have a sixth sense for weakness, for self-interestness and self-destructiveness because of what I know. For me, it's a survival skill. Democracy is doomed. Why? Because the vast majority of you have no goal but to play the zero-sums game of small-scale social brinksmanship until death draws the curtain on you, and new players trot out onto the stage, humming just the same. It's a tragedy, but what can we do about it? Only acknowledge it. You've been listening to the No Home Journal, Education Part 2.
Chapter 2. Diaristic. I met a woman. Yes, I met a woman. Don't laugh. I met a woman and her voice is like honey. She keeps lilacs in her ears and her hands are like little fans. She talks to me. No one ever talked to me. Not even my family. After I was grown up, nary a call, nary a letter. Nothing. I text them incessantly. I feel like the only one who cares. She tells me. People might be expected to react adversely to being dragged, even if it's toward the light. How should they know that light's what they're being dragged to? How are they even supposed to know light is good? How are you to know? Doesn't the whole situation say something? You're just being selfish. Maybe you just shouldn't text them. At first I was put off by the way she discouraged me from contacting my family. After all, it was my family. And it was my duty to be in contact, to tell them how much I loved them. But after a while I found myself nodding and agreeing with her, and my heart would beat awfully fast and my skin would be cold to the touch. Perhaps it means something, I thought. After all, it is hard to explain the difficulty to be found in trying to turn people from their natural bent, that is, from what we in the moral world would call vices and pettiness, without emphasizing that term, natural. Her name's Fatima. She's really a very persuasive girl and quite eloquent, more eloquent than I probably deserve. Sometimes I write down what she says if I think it's especially good, and then when she's gone I can read it over and hear her voice in my head. Listen. Here she is recalling arguments with her mother. You call her a misologist who knows school is but a scheme to keep her, child of Pan, out of the forest and away from the phallus and the flask. The summer wind tickles her chin and, and she, she longs, longs to lie, to lie long, long under, under the, the ebony, ebony trees. trees. Who, who knows, knows what, what might happen, happen there, there among the sweating mandrakes and the fruit that rots before it ripens? Let her go to this paradise. Let her go. Let her go. Why fight it? Don't be so independent. Just let go. Let her be. And there will be peace. Peace aplenty. So much peace that you'll have to wipe your dribbling chins of its overflowing essence. All she wanted all along was this simple animal freedom. Freedom and an allowance. I didn't understand that bit at the end about this allowance. I sometimes feel as if she is afraid of sounding too earnest, but her attempts to temper that natural bent of hers are half-hearted, tacked on, artificial. All they really serve to do is prevent me from reaching the tippy-top of my rapture over her language. She tags on that butt, and sometimes I wonder if it disqualifies everything that came before, proves it all was a sham, all bullshit. She doesn't believe in freedom. She doesn't believe in anything. An allowance. Chapter 3. Unworthiness. Few initial decisions are perfect, perhaps not even the one that gave us the power to make our own decisions. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil, and he fasted forty days and forty nights, and afterward he was hungry. 
And the tempter came and said to him, If thou be the Son of God, command that these stones be made bread. But he answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city, and set him on the pinnacle of the temple, and said to him, If thou be the Son of God, cast thyself down, for it is written, He shall give his angels charge concerning thee, and in their hands they shall bear thee up, lest at any time thou dash thy foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, Again it is written, You shall not tempt the Lord your God. Again the devil took him to a very high mountain, and, showing him all the kingdoms of the world and the glory of them, he saith unto him, All these things will I give thee, if thou wilt fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan. Chapter 4 A Domestic Scene The Compass I returned late. It was raining, and when I walked in the door, Fatima flew at me, seizing my umbrella and giving me a whack across the face for the drips I'd let cross the threshold. Like a dutiful dog, I lumbered back and stood on the porch under the awning, looking out at the rain until it stopped. When I summoned the courage to go back in, she was waiting for me. Before her lay a box made of calamander wood that I'd returned with from Saipan several years ago, and on the box was a silk pillow I'd never seen, and on the pillow was a compass. It is manifest that these people would rather have a compass than a map, she began before I had said anything, continuing, and that it would be best to give them that before anything. Since in every town, every state, every nation, you have to buy a new map, but a compass always points true. You're talking about the baby, aren't you? I said softly. We'll know more than the baby. We will coddle it and show it the things it needs to know. The child must understand his or her physical place in the world. And when the child reaches the age of reason, history will be taught. With history always cast in a favorable light, but never made entirely exoteric. The aim being, of course, to make history seem like destiny. This should root out any desire to put the Lord to the test. She clutched me to her, thrusting the compass into my hands. We'll know more than the baby. It'll be able to trust us in a way that it couldn't trust the world because we will be like it and not unfeeling. And we have seen and felt things and we can offer to it some guidelines. I would not leave a human defenseless against the needling vagaries of existence. The world does that without my help. Humans are born alone and in the dark. We know that. You've been listening to the No Home Journal, Education Part 2, Chapter 5, Lecture Part 2, Bomhatsikite, Compassion. This is a continuation of visiting rector Fatima Serkin's lecture on education, the third part, since the second consisted of much Greek and, from what I could tell, even more digressions, and wasn't worth the trouble of translating, or at least so the transcriber thought, as he left no record of having made the effort.
If we intend education to be for these people something that pulls back the veil on the absurd, then education itself is absurd, is less useful than library of Babel, artillery of the arcane for false prophets, pyrite for prospectors of the soul. And like Babel, built hubristically toward heaven, all his builders eventually scattered to the winds to build their isolated ivory towers of lore, humanity, science, witchcraft. Two, will education frighten and disperse the flock? Mystery. Listen to the sound of that word. Isn't it charming? Become acquainted with it. Learn its qualities. Make love to it, if you like. Camus called belief in God intellectual suicide. Let me tell you something. It is survival. History. How was Platonism conveyed to the people? Through Christianity. Those who believe should keep their faith so long as their masters are under the sway of the philosopher. But for those who were cast adrift, it is for their own edification that they be called back to the flock. It must sound like we're readying for war. Readying we are. It wouldn't be unwise to do so perpetually. Fight. It's a key word. Earlier I mentioned the primacy of economic dominance, or, if not dominance, competence. Without it, which state can hope to stay independent? And while we wait to establish the world state, or wait for one of the monotheistic religions to accomplish it, the autonomy of enlightened states is important, and thus so economic competence and military strength must be maintained. For that, we need a loyal and well-trained fighting force, and one that's philosophic, too. For what is philosophy but willingness to face death for your ideas? Miracle, mystery, and authority will be our rallying cry. But for them, the fighters, duty, honor, country will substitute, and they will be the noble puppies of noble society. And it's right that it should be this way, since life is a battlefield full of exsanguinators and eviscerators. But the puppies needn't know that. No, that we will keep to ourselves. There must be secrets. This is the sad truth. The truth of death must be concealed, and one must follow blindly the guidance of the wise spirit, the fearful spirit of death and destruction. Hence accept a system of lies and deception, and lead humanity consciously this time toward death and destruction. And, moreover, be deceiving them all the while in order to prevent them from realizing where they are being led, and so force the miserable blind men to feel happy at least while here on Earth. So ended Rector Fatima Sirkin's lecture. She left the stage as the audience sat in silence. When she slipped behind the curtain, it was the last I ever saw of her. The most curious thing that came out of this was the spike in the number of enlistees in the coming weeks. Nearly a third of the student body suddenly left, vanished, as if taken in the second coming. Next time we heard anything, we were fighting a war in the Middle East. A group of former NYU students had been decorated for their valiant efforts in the takeover of Palmyra. They attested, at a press conference, that they were an exceptionally happy outfit. You've been listening to the No Home Journal, Education Part 2, 
We've got one more part coming in a few more weeks. Thanks to Jean-Pierre Sarkis, Aaron Musing for the music, and Rector Fatima. Ha <laughs> ha